Hey, everybody. When you hear that great music from the title in town of Chicago, you know it's time for On the Lighter Side of Baseball, and in this coronavirus atmosphere, it is not easy to be on the lighter side of anything, especially baseball. But today, we are honored to have the voice of the Texas Rangers has entertained fans on the Ranger Broadcast Network since 1979. And I've seen some of those Ranger teams. I know what a tough picture it was to paint. But by God, this guy has a voice that can do that. And the 2014 inductee into the Hall of Fame and the Ford Frick Award winner. And uh, man, oh man, I've got some friends that have been nominated for that award and not won it. And my hat goes off to you, and I've, I just admire the work you've done, and I've listened to it. How are you doing? Thanks. I'm doing great. Uh, you know, I miss broadcasting baseball right now, but I kind of feel like I'm on a sabbatical year. And Absolutely. You, uh, uh, it's not the best conditions, but I'm learning that I don't really have to have anything to do to be happy. I'm pretty content now waking up in the morning every day and not really having anything I'm required to do. Well, what does uh, Eric Nadell think about the uh, start of baseball here in 2020? Is it going to happen? Well, I'm cautiously optimistic, and I wouldn't have said that a couple of weeks ago. But now that it appears Major League Baseball is you know, trying to implement a plan where most of the teams would play in their own home ballparks, I can see the players buying into it. I was having a rough time seeing the players buying into one of those plans where they were going to have to be away from their families for three or four months because all the games were being played in Arizona and, and Florida and maybe Texas, but most of the teams would be far away from you know, where they actually live, where their families are. Yeah, I think the, the at least the rumor that seems to be catching some kind of, uh, uh, you know, tread is the 10 – 10-team, three divisions uh, with, unfortunately, the Rangers not playing the Royals, but the Rangers being in the West and then everybody in the middle of the country in, in addition to Atlanta and then the East. So I'm not as optimistic as a lot of people are uh, with the possibility of this getting going, but I think the players are going to be the, the either the yay or the nay. And, new, you know, you got New York and you got Chicago and you got – Miami, which aren't doing real well in terms of uh, this coronavirus. But I, I don't know. I'd rather be optimistic than, than not. Yeah, me too. And obviously there are a lot of obstacles to overcome. Uh, having available testing for everybody on a daily basis might be the biggest one of all. Um, but I think they're going to have to you know, present something to the Players Union pretty soon if they're serious about actually getting started with the spring training or summer training as it is in yeah. and begin the season in early July. They, they're going to have to present something to the players union because it's going to take a while to negotiate all that. And then the players are going to need some warning before they actually head back to Arizona and to Florida. Yeah. Now, will you go down to Arizona uh, for a spring training uh, version two? I doubt it. Um, I think that they will probably limit the travel of the broadcasters uh, as much as they possibly can, especially those broadcasters who are in the at-risk, over 65 years old category. Um, I would imagine that whatever games uh, provide a TV feed, we would do play-by-play -play of those games from the radio station studio off a TV monitor. Uh, I doubt they would travel us out to Arizona for spring training. Uh, 
Um, now, whether they would travel us during the regular season is, is another matter entirely. If, in fact, they use a plan where teams are playing in their home stadiums for the most part or in the spring training stadiums. I could see a scenario where, you know, the home games played in our stadium in Texas allow us to go and do the games live, but all of the games that would require travel would probably find us doing the games from a studio, which is really hard to do, especially doing radio where you're having to describe things, but you can only see about one-tenth of what you want to see if you're working off the TV screen. Well, yeah, and even even if you're at the ballpark with no noise, it's going to be hard to uh, feed off of uh, feed yeah. off of the emotions that aren't there. That'd be really weird. I remember watching the Orioles game a few years ago after you know the riots in in Baltimore, and thinking how difficult that must have been, you know, for the Orioles announcers. You know, I've talked to our engineer about possibly running in the background, you know, some sort of a just a crowd noise murmur, you know, just a, a crowd noise buzz. And obviously, there's not going to be a lot of crowd noise on a home run or an exciting play. But at least between pitches, it wouldn't sound like you're in a studio. It would sound like you're at a ballpark. And I think that would probably help quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. I thought, you know, like some of the NFL teams at the end of the year get ready for playoffs, especially if they're going to play the Kansas City Chiefs, and they pump in the noise, simulating the noise of the crowd. I was wondering if something like you were talking about might happen in the general uh, uh, bowl of the stadium. I think that would be kind of better than just like in a library. Yeah, and you know, the whole thing is so weird for us because you know, we were supposed to move into a new stadium this year. Yeah. And you know, we don't know how it plays. We don't know whether it's loud or not loud. We don't know the differences with the roof open or the roof closed. We don't know anything about it. And when we start playing in it, if this plan goes through, there aren't going to be any fans when we start playing in there. And that's really going to be strange. Yeah. And that's what, you know, as a season ticket holder for the Royals and the Cubs, I've taken the position that if there's no fan allowed, selfishly, there shouldn't be any baseball. But I think that if there is going to be baseball, at least for the first month or two and probably the whole year, there aren't going to be any fans. So I offered when Dwayne Stats, I've had Dwayne on a couple times, and I told Dwayne that I would be more than happy to work for free as his valet if I could tag along with him and, you know, go to the ball games. I think that would be a great job. Yeah, and I'm offer to you, Eric. Thanks. Now, Dwayne might actually get to travel, you know, being the TV announcer. Yeah. The guess is teams will be more likely to take their TV announcers with them than the radio announcers just because TV always takes precedence, it's a bigger audience and there's more money involved. That could be none of the announcers travel and the TV announcers work off monitors too when their team is on the road. And that's so hard to do. And you know, anybody who watched the ESPN game that lost the feed for a while where the announcers are here rather than in Korea, um, got a little taste of what it would be like for everybody to try and do broadcasts without actually being in the stadium. You know, things go out every now and then. And then you're really scrambling like the guys in the old days who were recreating games off the ticker tape yeah. and you know, just praying that the next play would come up sooner rather than later. I believe you're referring to Ronald Reagan and the Chicago Cubs and the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, publicity that he got when he did that. What a great, you know, the, my love of baseball started when, I, I had to be five or six, and when I was seven years old, my dad took me to 
Comiskey Park, and I actually saw a no-hitter by Bob Keegan, which I have no idea what, you know, that was the only no-hitter I've seen, by the way. How, how did you uh, get involved, get the bug, and uh, then go into, into the uh, profession that you are in and that I so ad- admire? Well, I started playing really young. Um, my dad and my uncle got me a, a ball and a glove for maybe my third or fourth birthday. And as soon as I found out what Little League was, I demanded to be in it. And that my father wrote the wrong date on the Little League application so I could get in a year younger than you should. It's the only time I've ever seen my father um, deliberately lie or tell any kind of untruth. And he did it to get me off his back. So I think at age six, rather than waiting till seven or eight, I was able to start playing Little League. And I grew up in Brooklyn and the Dodgers were still there. The last year the Dodgers were at Ebbets Field was 1957 and that was the year I turned six. And for my sixth birthday, my dad took me to a Dodgers game. And we saw the Dodgers play the Milwaukee Braves. I still have my scorecard from the game. the number two hitter for the Milwaukee Braves, a skinny guy named Hank Aaron, hit two home runs. So that was my introduction to baseball. The second game I went to a few weeks later for my sister's birthday, they played the New York Giants, and I got to see Willie Mays hit a home run. And later on that summer, I saw the Cubs with Ernie Banks. I saw the Reds with Frank Robinson. And, yeah. of course, the Dodger teams I was watching had guys like Duke Snyder and Pee Wee Reese and Gil Hodges, who was actually a neighbor of ours, lived around the corner. I went to high school with his son. Um, so that's how I got indoctrinated. Really, the year that I turned six was the year I started following Major League Baseball. And my grandfather even taught me to read before I learned to read in school because I kept bugging him about being able to read the standings and box scores and things like that. So I learned to read really early just because of baseball. Well, I'll tell you what. There was no, in my opinion, there wasn't a better, I call it the flannel era because they all wore baggy flannel clothes, uh, uniforms. You know, I saw Ted Williams play at Comiskey Park. I saw the same guys that I, and I'm an avid baseball card collector. And so there's nothing more fun and exciting than to look at the 53, 54, 55 through 59, uh, you know, baseball cards. And you're Dodgers who moved west i saw a game believe it or not at um the old coliseum and there had to be eighty-five thousand people so you know it was unbelievable then fast forward to 59 my dad somehow got tickets to the game six of the 59 world series and of course it didn't go as well as game one <laughs> the Red Sox. yeah that game one was what 11 to nothing early and was the route and game six was as bad a route in the other direction. But, uh, you know, it was just, you know, for a kid like with you, and we're, you're a year younger, but our birthdays are pretty close. Mine's Yogi Berra's birthday on May 12th, so I'm about to turn 70, and I know four days later you're going to turn 69. Yes, on Billy Martin's birthday. Billy, oh, my God. All right, here's a, you know what, this, this is, there's so many stories that, that uh, I can go for days with you because I just, know enough a little about you to make me dangerous but dave nelson billy martin so nelly in 73 had a great year he had 286 and i mean he was the mvp got that dodge charger 
And it was, you know, Burroughs and Hargrove and great, all those guys. It was a great team. So I'm in law school and uh, Dave's not making much money and I'm making no money, but we became friends. And so I'd go over to Arlington, you know, instead of going to the law library and uh, for happy hour at a place called the Red Apple Lounge, which was near Turnpike Stadium near where Dave lived. You know, the old... I think it was, it was in the... It was a hotel bar. I remember yeah, but they had, a, yeah. they had a big chunk of cheese for free, and then we were drinking Boodle's gin. Well, all of a sudden, you know, Herzog had gotten fired, and in walks Billy Martin. And I'd had a drink or two, and I'd go to Dave, you know, I don't think Whitey had you bunt enough. I'm going to go talk to Billy about how you can hit 300. Mm-hmm. And, and Dave goes, don't you dare go anywhere near Billy. Well, I knew Dave would have to go to the bathroom, which he did. I immediately went over to Billy, and for three or four hours, we became fast friends. It was a, a highlight night for, for me. But Billy was really nice to us when, uh, you know, he was gone from the Rangers by the time I started doing this, but, you know, soon after became the manager of the Yankees. And he was really cooperative with the media in Texas because his family still lived in Texas. And he had a lot of... Uh, a lot of warm emotions uh, toward the area. And so anytime I wanted to get Billy on a pregame show, I had no problems at all, whereas other announcers in the league would talk about how difficult Billy was for them. Yeah. He, was, he was great for us. He, he was wonderful. He'd say, come on in and sit down and close the door. And, you know, we would do a five-minute show and shoot the breeze for a while. You know, I loved it. And I grew up hating Billy Martin because he – you know, he won the World Series for the Yankees by making an incredible catch on a pop-up. And my dad told me that story over and over again. And when I told him that I was getting friendly with Billy Martin, he wanted no part of that. <laughs> oh, man, what a what a magnificent, strange career and strange life that uh, Billy the Kid had. But, God, what a what an interesting guy. Those, his eyes, man, I wasn't going to do anything that Billy didn't want to talk about. And uh, that was that was a funny funny time, but uh, you know, then Nelly got ran into, and I'm laughing at, at your story with the uh, Mets shortstop and Richie Ashburn, and uh, and then getting hit by Frank Thomas. Well, the, both Lenny Randall and Nelly spoke perfect English, and uh, uh, Nelly get, never got called off. Ran into Randall, and that ended pretty much the career of Dave Nelson. But uh, I, I just love that story that you told. Um, about that and about you know with the Spanish and and the fact yeah. that <laughs> so great. That's a classic New York Mets story. The original Mets had Elio Chacon as the shortstop, who didn't speak any English, and Richie Ashburn was the center fielder, and they kept running into each other. And finally, Richie went to Joe Christopher, uh, who was bilingual, and said, "How do I say I got it? I, I got to be able to get Chacon to back off. How do I say I got it?" And he said, "It's yo la tengo." And so Ashburn says, yo la tengo, yo la tengo. And he goes home that night and he practices, you know, over and over in front of the mirror, yo la tengo, yo la tengo. And the next day, as they're running out onto the field, he goes over to Chacon and he nudges Chacon and he says, yo la tengo, yo la tengo. And Chacon says, ah, si, si, perfecto, comprendo completamente, no hay problema hoy. And then late in the game, the Mets are winning and the opposing team has the bases loaded. And there's a high pop fly hit to left center field. And Jacone's going out, and it looks like he may be getting under it. And Ashburn's coming in, and it looks like they're going to collide again. But Ashburn yells, yo, Latingo, yo, Latingo. And Jacone gets out of the way. And next thing you know, the left fielder, Frank Thomas, 
goes smashing into Ashburn and sends him flying, and the ball falls out of his glove. All three runners score, and the Mets eventually lose. And Frank Thomas and Ashburn are both lying there on the ground in left center field. And Thomas leans over to Ashburn. He says, what the hell is a yellow tango? And what a great story. There's a rock band called Yola Tango, which is from New York, and took that story and turned it into the name of a band. And they're a really good band. They've been around for a long time. Well, and of course, music's another one of your great interests that not only, you know, you, you have lived a full life between, you know, uh, broadcasting hockey out of college and then getting the job with the Rangers, which we'll get into because I find that fascinating. I went to the Rangers when I was in my junior, right after Bob Short had moved the team out there. Danny O'Brien was a general manager. A buddy of mine and I saw an ad in the Dallas Morning News for ushers a job for a frigging usher. And so we drive out to uh, where their offices were. I'm sure they're at the ballpark. And we, we get a 20-minute meeting with Danny O'Brien. Never got the job. I, you know, I couldn't even become an usher for the Texas Rangers. And I uh, love the fact that uh, you got the job, you auditioned for the job, and that was your first major, that was your first baseball gig, as I understand it. No, well, I had never done a baseball game. I was in Dallas doing minor league hockey for the Chicago Blackhawks AAA club, the Dallas Blackhawks. This was before the Dallas Stars moved from Minnesota. And just in an amazingly lucky coincidence, right after I found out that I was about to be unemployed, because the Chicago Blackhawks were moving their franchise to Monk in New Brunswick. Um, just a couple of weeks later, I got a call from the director of broadcasting for the Texas Rangers saying that they were looking to hire a young announcer because one of their announcers, Bill Merrill, was getting ready to retire in a year or two, and they wanted to kind of train his successor. And so they were looking for somebody young. They were clearly looking for somebody cheap and someone for whom they didn't have to pay moving expenses. And apparently they liked the way that I did hockey and they asked me if I had ever done baseball and I lied and told them I had, but sure. I, I didn't have the tape to prove it. So they let me do four games into a cassette recorder in the booth by myself. And fortunately, you know, I was a big baseball fan and I grew up listening to baseball on the radio and idolized all those announcers, Mel Allen and Red Barber and Lindsey Nelson and Bob Murphy. Uh, I knew basically the phraseology of calling a baseball game. Of course, I had no idea how to fill the time between pitches after being a hockey announcer for six years yeah. where you could fill any time at all. Um, but I guess the audition was good enough that they figured if an off-season uh, would provide me five months to get ready, by the time the season started the next year, uh, I wouldn't embarrass myself or anybody else. And that's how I got the job. And the first year was kind of an audition. I only did 30 games that year. Now, those were the games that were on TV. If you remember, only road games were on TV and not all the road games. Right. Needed another announcer because the games were on TV and the regular announcer, uh, John Miller, moved over to do TV. Um, I was the guy. I was the extra announcer. And that's how I got the job. And then after the one-year trial period, if you will, uh, I got hired to work on a regular basis starting in 1980. And that was my second year with the Rangers. Well, I used to go to a lot of the Central Hockey League games when I was, you know, again, ditching class at SMU. Got to know some of the Dallas uh, Blackhawks, I guess they were called, back at the fairgrounds. And 
there were a bunch of them that were fraternity brothers actually of mine, wherever they went to, to college. And the thing I noticed being a snobby NHL, only six teams in the league kind of guy listening to Lloyd Pettit when I was uh, young was that the game didn't seem to move as fast, but I couldn't even imagine broadcasting hockey. I mean, so tell me how in the world did you get the job originally out of college and how in the world did you settle in to, to that fast moving, no matter what, it's a fast moving sport to broadcast. Well, that's the sport I always wanted to broadcast. Um, you'll love this because uh, when I was in high school, I went to uh, the Cherub program at Northwestern yeah. uh, somewhere between my junior and senior year. They had a broadcasting program. They didn't have a sports casting program per se, but they taught you how to be a disc jockey, how to do news, a little bit of TV production, and they got you your FCC license so you could work legally for any radio station, even if you were the only person on duty at the station. All of those things came in handy for me later on, but they also arranged for me to sit with Bob Elson and Red Rush during a doubleheader uh, at Comiskey Park late in wow. the season. And I remember thinking that day, and both these guys were pretty old and, and not too far from retirement. They both probably should have already retired because they were bored and they were boring and they really weren't making that much of an effort. And I thought to myself, this is really hard. Um, I got to concentrate on one of those fast paced sports. And growing up in New York at the time I did, at least when I was in high school, Marv Albert was doing the New York Rangers games on the radio. Okay. He was also doing the New York Knicks on the radio. He never traveled. He did whichever team was playing at home and they did home games on radio and road games on TV. And he did all the radio for both teams. And he was amazing in both sports. And when I went to college, I went to Brown, where they had a really good radio station. And that's the reason I went there more than any other, was they had produced a lot of professional radio announcers. Even though they didn't have any courses in radio, you learn from the people at the station. And when I got up there, you know, the first week, I said, I want to do play-by-play. And they said, well, we do soccer, football, and hockey. What are you interested in? And I said, well, I don't know anything about soccer, but I'd love to do football and hockey. And they let me start doing it. I was basically a, an intern my first year or second year, and then eventually became the play-by-play announcer by my junior year. And hockey was the sport that was the most fun. And I kind of patterned myself after Marv Albert. You know, it was a very fast, staccato-type style. Right. And... I would listen to as many other announcers as I could, whoever I could pick up late at night. Every now and then I could get Lloyd Pettit coming from Chicago and Dan Kelly from St. Louis. Yeah. And uh, Bob Wilson from Boston was a tremendous hockey announcer. And by the time I, I got out of Brown, you know, I thought I was pretty good. I sent out a bunch of audition tapes, about 60 of them, to all the minor league teams in the country. And when I graduated, I still didn't have a job. Uh, I was actually working as a janitor at Brown, which was my college job. My parents were really proud. They had paid this money for Ivy League education, and here I'm working as a janitor. There you go. And then one day out of the blue, I got a phone call from the owner of the Muskegon Mohawks, a very low-level minor league hockey team in Muskegon, Michigan. And he said that his announcer had just quit, and he went to the file, and I was the – guy on the top of the file and 
you know, he listened to my tape and he liked it. And we had a conversation for about an hour and he called me back the next day and offered me the job. So I hopped in my broken down car and <laughs> drove out to Muskegon, Michigan to be the voice of the Muskegon Mohawks in the International Hockey League. It was just like the movie Slapshot. It was just like that. In fact, the guys from that movie, the Hanson brothers, actually were in our training camp the first year I was in Muskegon, trying out for the team, and they couldn't make, they didn't skate well enough, they, they couldn't make it. But you know, they were these goony guys that yeah. teams wanted to have a guy like that, and a fourth enforcer or two, being crazy helped a little bit, and those guys were. So they eventually got jobs in the Eastern Hockey League, which was a, a parallel league to the one that Muskegon was in, which was the International Hockey League. And so I, I spent three years there. Uh, then I got a better job, finally, in Oklahoma City. I spent a year there. Then I got a better job in Dallas. And that's where I was when you know, the Texas Rangers found me. And you missed out on minor league baseball totally, which, uh, which is kind of interesting and unique. Yeah, and in fact, I had a chance when I was getting out of Brown to do the Pawtucket Red Sox, who were a double-A team at the time. Yeah. And they were interested in having me do their games. And again, having sat with Bob Elson that long day in Chicago, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to set my sights on hockey, and I was, you know, I was willing to take my chances that I would get to the NHL um, a lot faster as a hockey announcer than I would get to the major leagues as a baseball announcer. And I joke all the time, I tell people when I was a little kid, and they, people would ask me, what do you want to do when you grow up? I would tell them I want to be the voice of the Rangers. And I didn't specify which Rangers. Yeah, there you go. Have uh, you ever uh, thought about uh, crossing over into, uh, back into hockey? Or? I did for a few years. And in fact, when the Dallas Stars came down, um, I had a choice to make. I, you know, I probably could have gotten that job and been the original voice of the, of the Dallas Stars. But... By that time, I had realized what the benefits are of doing baseball. Um, the fact that when you travel, you get to stay in a place for three or four days. You're not constantly flying out after a game or the next morning at 6 a.m. as they do in hockey. Um, you're traveling almost always in good weather in baseball, whereas those hockey guys are hauling big coats around and you know, gloves and hats and they're constantly getting sick because they're in and out of cars and cabs where they have coats on and then it gets sweaty in there and then you know anybody who lives in a cold weather place knows what that's like it's really hard and when i was doing hockey i used to get sick a lot and it was always a battle keeping my voice in shape and in baseball i never seemed to have those problems uh, plus i had a tremendous broadcast partner in, in mark holtz who i loved working with and so you know i passed on the opportunity to to move back into hockey. But at the time that I got out of, um, out of Muskegon, no, at the time I got done in Dallas, when I was looking around um, for hockey jobs and the Rangers found me, the Blackhawks job was open. Lloyd Pettit had retired. Wow. And I was the, as the AAA announcer for the Blackhawks, I think by default, I was a finalist for their radio job. Um, which ultimately went to a guy named Andy McWilliams. Okay. And Andy was a really good announcer. He had done the Cincinnati team in the American Hockey League. Yeah. But unfortunately, he ran into serious voice problems. I think he had vocal cord surgery and eventually you know, had to give that job up. Um, by that time, they had long forgotten about me, as they probably should have. Well, is it Pat Foley that does it now on uh, 
I think on TV or, or radio, one of the two. Um, good announcer. Yeah, excellent announcer. And in fact, the, the Blackhawks, along with the Stars, were the last two teams to have simulcasts where their radio announcer was also their TV announcer. Yeah. And the Stars are still doing it that way. I don't think the Blackhawks are anymore. But the Dallas Stars still do that. Well, they only have two announcers, and the sound that's on TV is the radio broadcast, um, which is really hard on the radio audience because the, you know, the actual job of doing a television play-by-play is quite a bit different than the job of a radio announcer. Yeah, and I'm not sure TV, TV you know, lends itself to, uh, to hockey. I know that you know, through the years, NBC or whoever's done the national games had problems doing it. In Chicago, they televised all the away games when I was growing up at WGN with Lloyd Pettit. And, um, and then we'd, we'd go down to the Chicago Stadium, sit in the third mezzanine, and by the third period, you know, you couldn't see the ice. So everybody just smoked like, you know, it was going out of style. And, uh, you know, most of the time it didn't matter by the third period. And the, the, the Hawks did have some good years, but they had some bad years. With, but I love those guys. I mean – you know, Chicago sports and I, you know, laughing about Bob Elson because as a White Sox fan, the commander was on all the time. And uh, people used to joke that uh, uh, you're the first live evidentiary witness that I've got. And we used to always joke that he was reading the Wall Street Journal between pitches. And so you got to tell me, as boring as he was, there had to be something occupying his time besides looking out in La La Land. No, he wasn't doing anything the day that I was there. And Red Rush with Loyola Rambler basketball, you know, it was a rhyme. Everything was roll. And I don't know if he made it up in advance, but I mean, the guy had some great calls for Loyola, never really made that segue into baseball. But I love announcers. I think it's just the best part of baseball other than being at the game. And uh, when when Nelly uh, had the good fortune of uh, broadcasting with Dwayne Statz and Harry Carey in Chicago, and then Tom Hamilton in, uh, in Cleveland, you know, I, I got to know Dwayne uh, pretty well, and I got to know Tom a little bit, and I, I just was so envious. You know, I, all I did was go to law school and try about 150 jury trials, but all I really wanted to do was play, coach, or broadcast baseball. And so you've got the you've got the dream job, and I'm not only the dream job, but a Hall of Fame uh, resume. Which you know, hats off to you. That is spectacular, and I only hope that uh, in the coming years, Hamilton stats and um, uh, Pat Hughes um, gets gets the nod because you're in great company, my friend. Yeah, those three guys are fabulous. And unfortunately now, you know, the Hall of Fame has this system for the Frick Award where current team announcers only get selected every third year. Yeah. Paul Harrelson was the winner this year, finally. I've been complaining <laughs> to him ever since I won it in 2014 when I thought he should have won it. Yeah. You know, a couple of years later, Bill King won, and I loved Bill King, and it was basically between him and Hawk that year. So I was expecting that Hawk would win this year, and I'm glad that he did. Um, but, you know, Pat and, and Dwayne are always strong candidates. They've both been finalists a number of times. Tom was a finalist this 
last year. Right. Younger than the rest of us, so it might take a little bit longer. Um, but, you know, the thing about baseball announcers, too, you get to identify with them in a different way because it's every day and because the baseball announcer, more than the announcer in any other sport, gets to show you his personality. You get a feel for what kind of a guy he is. And I don't think that any other sport lends itself to that because the other sports are so fast and they don't have the conversational tone and they don't have all that time to fill between pitches. You know, in a baseball game, the ball's in play for 15 minutes in a game that lasts for three hours. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But before we get to that... That's the challenge of the game is making the rest of it interesting. Well, and you won't have to do rain delays now with a roof over your head. That's true. We were were fortunate, too, the way that our station has done it for many years is our pre- and post-game show host would host the uh, rain delay theater portion of the broadcast. And and Matt Hicks, my partner, and I would be on there frequently um, having conversations with him. Right. The pre- and post-game show's job to anchor that thing as opposed to us, which is, you know, really good for those two- and three-hour rain delays. It's just a nightmare for the play-by-play announcer to be on that whole time and then have to do a game once the game resumes. Yeah. I know Dave did the pregame and postgame for the Brewers and, along with Craig Kashan. And, uh, you know, then they would have to do it from the studio when the team was away, which gets into all the problems when you're doing a show with another guy and the other guy is a thousand miles away and on a monitor. That's tough. But tell me about Steve Busby for all my listeners in Kansas City. Uh, no hit buzz, man. I mean, everything you ever hear is he's just a great guy. He was a fantastic guy. I actually met Buzz when he was trying to make a comeback with the Royals. I think it was 1980, uh, maybe 81. And it, it didn't go so well. You know, they didn't have the surgical techniques they have now, or he right. probably had a much longer career. But a wonderful guy and really intelligent uh, and a warm-hearted, kind guy. I had a chance to work with him in my early years uh, on TV because, you know, back in those days, the announcers would go back and forth between radio and TV. And Steve was our TV color man for a few years. Um, so I would get to work part of the game with him where he would be the color man. And then later on, um, he became my partner on radio for a while before moving back into the TV booth. Uh, he's also done the pre and post game show, tremendously versatile as an announcer and a really good analyst, you know, particularly of what the pitcher's trying to do, but, but not just that. You know, over the years, he became much more than, than just an analyst of what's going on on the mound. Um, just tremendous guy, great broadcaster, and apparently an incredible pitching coach. I know he's been probably the most sought-after pitching coach in the Dallas-Fort Worth area for many years, you know, by high school and, and college kids. And there are a number of players in the major leagues now who come from the DFW area who were schooled by Steve Busby at some point in their career. Yeah, no, and, and a great pitcher. The Ryan Presley of the of the Astros, who who set a record for consecutive uh, scoreless innings as a reliever. You know, he was one of one of Busby's prized pupils. That's awesome. Let's talk about the uh, the state of the game when uh, Burley's not pitching, when you don't have a two-hour game. Yeah, I I can't stand it. You know, I think it's a major problem. And I think that we need to try and get back to when the games were two hours and 40 minutes and they had some rhythm to them. They just don't have any rhythm now that the players are not forced to stay in the box. 
and the pitchers are not forced to throw the pitch in any sort of a timely manner. Um, pitchers have so much more information now, as do the hitters, that everybody thinks they need more time between pitches to figure out what the other guy is going to do. And until baseball actually legislates a rule and enforces the rule, um, it's going to get worse and worse, and it does every year. The average time between pitches, you know, used to be around 20 seconds, and now it's more like 25 to 28 seconds. And over the course of a game, that's 10 or 15 dead minutes when absolutely nothing is going on. It's compounded by the fact that the hitters now seem to be more skilled in hitting foul balls. Uh, they work the counts deeper. Yeah. So the ball is actually put in play far less often. And with players not caring about how often they strike out, they're just trying to either walk or hit a home run. Um, that even compounds the problem of the ball never being put in play so that there aren't enough fielding plays. There aren't enough plays at the bases. Uh, and that's complicated by the fact that nobody's supposed to take chances on the bases now because the next guy might hit a home run. So don't try to steal second. Just stay at first. And, you know, if a guy gets a hit, it's probably going to be an extra base hit, and you're going to score from first anyway. All of these, for me, are real problems in enjoying the game as a viewer or as a broadcaster. Yeah, you know, it's it's really tough for young fans. It appears to get attached to baseball now, and you know that's a really big reason. It's not just the length of the game itself, which is bad at three hours and ten minutes on the average. It's the actual rhythm of the game, you know, as you're watching. Our one job, ball, one one ball in play every four minutes last year. Yeah, and, it's terrible. and you know we would sometimes time it, and we'd go twenty minutes sometimes without a ball actually in play. You know, right. ball count walk strikeout, uh, five throws over to first base, you know, a couple of foul balls. You know, by the time somebody actually hits a ground ball or a fly ball someplace, you know, you've gone 15 or 20 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for the one – it drives me crazy. And I, I go to a lot of games. And my wife in Chicago, we live, uh, you know, near the red line. So, she, you know, at that point she would – halfway through the game, get on the, the train, say, I'm going to go home, have a friend go with her, and uh, that was that. I'd sit to, say to the next guy, man, you know, we're in for a three-and-a-half, four-hour game. And the guy goes, so what, man? This is the only game I go to all year. And so some people like it. But the uh, I used to go to – the game started at 8 o'clock at night at Comiskey, and we were home by 1030 because they were two-hour, 2.15. World Series, I looked at the 59 box scores two hours and six minutes in the World Series. Now, in the playoffs, if you start a game, but you watch the NFL games on Sunday afternoon while the, while the uh, playoff baseball is going on, you can see at least one and a half NFL games during the course of a baseball game. And it's, it's maddening to me. And a shot clock like basketball and umpires that take a fist and tell everybody at the beginning of the game, I'm going to expand the strike zone. These guys can get used to that. The umpires drive me crazy. Yeah, and that's why I'm actually in favor of robotic umpires. You know, I think the strike zone should be the same every game, not depending on, you know, who's doing the game. Yeah. I want to see that happen, and I think it'll speed up the game. One of the things that will speed up the game. Obviously, a pitch clock is the most important thing, along with forcing the batters to stay in the box. And I understand the player's reluctance to accept this. Nobody wants to be rushed in their job. Uh, but everybody isn't 
an entertainer. Everybody isn't a performer as they are with people paying money to see them perform. That's why they need to make the adjustment uh, and you know, stop fighting this, which they've been doing for years. Every year the commissioner says, well, I have the power to implement this, and ultimately he doesn't because the players are so opposed to it, and he's got other battles to fight with the players that he thinks are more important. Right. The, um, you know, I think the A shot clock, where from the time that the catcher throws the ball back, the pitcher gets it, whether it's 20 seconds, 25 seconds, without st- and no rule about stepping off the rubber, no rule about throwing to first base. I guess you have an exception. But if, a, if like a shot clock violation in basketball, noise went off, if you had a big and that was a ball, I guarantee that the major leaguers would be embarrassed, and that would never happen after about three times. It works in the minors. You know, anybody who's watched a minor league game that uses the pitch clock, you know, can notice the rhythm of the game is completely different. Yeah. And you're right. You know, they're not going to sell any less beer. They're not going to sell any less peanuts, and they're not going to lose fans. I mean, I scratch my head at the attendance marks that that the teams get because, to me, the game is so different now. I keep score just because I'm bored. I mean, I like to keep score, but, but I mean, you know, I can't eat that many peanuts and I don't drink more than one beer. And so what are you going to do? It's like, and, and then, and without, you know, you Darvish, God love him. I mean, he had a great year and we can get into different guys and I won't do that. But man, when he's not feeling good, it's like a pitch every two minutes. <laughs> Yeah, you know, we, we had him for we had him for I six know you did. So we well we dealt with that. He was extremely frustrating to watch. And yeah, when we would get a game and Burley was pitching, you know, it was like we had a day off for half the game. You didn't have to worry about how you're gonna fill the time between pitches. Um, he did that for you. And there aren't very many guys like that. I I, I remember the last year that R. A. Dickey pitched. Oh. He was the second fastest guy because he threw a knuckleball. Right. And he, you have to think about what he was going to throw, and he thought it was to his advantage to get the ball back and throw it as fast as he could. Right. On fan graphs now, um, the great baseball website, uh, they show you the average time between pitches for every pitcher. It's a stat they call pace. So we actually know how slow you Darvish is compared to all the other pitchers in the league, and he is always among the top five slowest. And do they have a – Graph on the umpires? Um, no, they don't have a thing on the umpires. Um, but they've got everybody's time between pitches. And Dickey was always 17, 18 seconds. Early would be 16, usually. Yeah. And but all of a sudden, in his last year, which I think was two years ago when, when Dickey was pitching for Atlanta, all of a sudden he was at 20, 21 seconds, which was still better than almost everybody else in the league. Um, and we played Atlanta late in the season. And I asked, I said, R.A., what's going on here? You know, you were the one guy I could count on, you know, where I, I didn't have to worry about what I was going to say between pitches because you were going to get the ball and throw it. He said, they won't let me throw it. The batters are stepping out. Right. The umpires aren't making them stay in the box. He says, that's why I'm up to 20 seconds um, from 17. It's not out of my control. Yeah. Well, they, they, somebody needs to do something about it. And the commissioner, you know, has to figure it out in the, in the union, the Players oh, Association. They ask how they enforce it because they don't want the umpires policing it. They don't want the umpires and players to be constantly at odds 
over telling the guy to get back in the box. Yeah. Well, I asked in a conference call with all the league announcers a couple of years ago, well, how do you enforce it? They said, well, we have a guy watches the video every game and we send letters to the offenders and we give them a couple of warnings and then we start finding them. You know, I can only imagine how many letters Rugnet Odor gets every year. Dear Rugnet, you know, on April the 16th against the White Sox, you stepped out of the box three times and you were here by fine $750. Well, that's just the cost of doing business to him. Yeah. You know, however many dollars, thousands of dollars in fines he paid at the end of the season, it's worth it to him to be able to perform at the max, which is, he thinks requires him taking all this time stepping out between pitches. And so, you know, they pay the fine. It obviously doesn't work. It's like you say, they have to start calling a strike every time a guy steps out and calling a ball every time a pitcher takes more than 20 seconds or whatever they decide it should be. And I think the, you know, whether it's the pitch quick philosophy or the drag your feet philosophy, I think there's some pitching coaches that employ that strategically. I know the Brewers, it seems like whenever they play the Cubs, the, uh, the time between pitches just skyrockets upward. And it's like, um, you know, freezing a guy with a, uh, trying to kick a field goal in the last second of the game. It just drives me crazy. And, you know, I think I'm, a, you know, as much a baseball lover as there is. But, man, oh, man, the game just uh, needs to change. Well, I'll tell you, and part of the problem is that relief pitchers now throw more innings than they've ever thrown before. Right. You can see those stats on fan graphs. Relief pitchers, on the average, take five to eight seconds more between pitches than starters do. Yeah. And it's a combination of working in high leverage situations. So they think they have to think even more and relief pitchers tend to be maximum effort guys. They actually need a few extra seconds to recover between pitches. And those two things combined contribute to the problem that the game has with its pace. When the starting pitcher used to throw an average of what, six and a third innings, um, the game might move along at a decent pace. But now that relievers are coming on in the fifth inning or the sixth inning, or even starting the game as an opener, right. it's a completely different field of the game. Like when the starter leaves the game, most times the game grinds to a halt. Yeah, it does. Reliever comes in, and all of a sudden it's like watching a different sport. Well, how does that affect the broadcast? I it's mean, it's really hard to fill that time. Does um, it bother you? It bothers me a lot. And, you know, I like to feel that um, you need to fill the time. I'm not going to give you Bob Elson, you know, five or 10 seconds of crowd noise and hearing the hot dog vendor. Some guys do that. And some yeah. guys think it's entertaining. Um, I used to debate this with Jerry Howarth, you know, good buddy of mine who was a longtime voice of the Blue Jays. You know, he was really into stadium sounds and making sure that you shut up to let the PA announcer come through before every batter. And, you know, I don't agree with that. I think what I say between pitches should be more interesting than hearing the PA announcer over and over and over again. Yeah, I always let the PA announcer come through once in a while. Uh, I make it a point of at least once, you know, in road games, pointing out who the PA announcer is and then letting the audience hear him, you know, introduce uh, Frank Thomas in a game in Chicago 
you know, or Kirby Puckett in a game in Minnesota. Or that's her. Sort of the flavor of the game, but not every time. Right. I, it's my job to entertain, inform, and keep the audience awake during that time between pitches. But as I listen to games, and I listen to a lot of games, you know, on XM and on the, on the app, the MLB at bat app, a lot of announcers aren't even trying. Right. They're just leaving dead air for four and five seconds after every pitch. And I don't blame them. It's really hard to try and fill that extra time. But, you know, we're, we're trying to do it because I think it's more interesting. You know, you wind up talking back and forth with your partner more. You wind up talking about things other than game itself more. Which is okay. I mean, it's better to do that, in my opinion. And again, I, you know, I'm critical of announcers that I don't like, and I pull the guys up that I do like on a, on a lofty pedestal. But I'd much rather hear, you know, you know a little bit of humor uh, you know, my show is called The Lighter Side of Baseball. My kids say, you know, it's really the grumpy side of baseball because I'm not that funny. And uh, it still is better to hear that than, you know, you'll hear in a, in, a, in a World Series game without naming any announcers. You know, this is the first catcher to hit two doubles, a bunt, sacrifice bunt, steal third and throw out a runner since two thought, you know, just like stop already. You know, you got a lot of knowledge in your brain. I don't need some producer telling you what the statistics are that you think somebody's going to be interested. And my second pet peeve is that it's a little different with the radio, but the local guys don't do the playoffs just bothers me. And I think that's a major mistake from Bud Selig to Manfred to not have somebody besides the same guy doing it year in and year out, at least for half a game. Yeah. And that's how they used to do it. I mean, main announcer for, the team involved used to do half the game. And, you know, it's one of the reasons I've never switched over to TV, although That's I've been asked. Yeah. You, know, you do the whole season and then you sit on the sidelines during the postseason. You know, that's crazy. At least on radio, you get to go all the way to the end of the World Series if your team happens to go. Absolutely. And there was nothing like Pat Hughes doing Game 7 from Cleveland of the 2016 World Series. I loved it. Hey, Talk about the Hall of Fame. It's my favorite place in America. Cooperstown is just such a great spot. Tell me the emotions you were going through as you were a finalist in the Fort Frick Award, getting the, the call that you got in, and then preparing for your acceptance speech and the segue in two languages. I got to hear it. Well, I was. I think I was a a finalist four times before I actually won. Um, Dwayne Stats and I were kind of the Susan Lucci of the uh, Ford Trail. Uh, <laughs> I love that. Can I, I, I got to tell Dwayne that. That's great. And then, you know, and then finally I won. And it, it's kind of unbelievable when you actually get the call because, you know, I, again, I grew up listening to the two guys who were the first two recipients, Mel Allen and Red Barber. And then when the Mets came, I became a Mets fan and both of their announcers, Lindsey Nelson and Bob Murphy, have won the award. Plus, as I got into baseball announcing and started listening to Ernie Harwell and Jack Buck, you know, and all the guys in Chicago, um, those guys are, are my idols, sure. and they still are. And it seems to me almost like there should be a wall for those guys and a wall for the rest of us guys. Um, <laughs> just like the first ballot Hall of Famers, you know, are in a different category 
from, from the rest of the Hall of Famers as players. Um, the weekend that you are there to receive the award, you get a chance to stay in, a, in the Hotel Otisaga. Yeah. It's a historic old hotel there, which is uh, on the shores of the lake. It's absolutely beautiful. It has this huge veranda where all the Hall of Famers hang out all weekend, sitting around smoking cigars in rocking chairs. And you get to be a part of that. And, you know, the only people who can stay in the hotel that weekend are Hall of Famers, new inductees, and super A-list celebrities like yeah. Billy Crystal and Tom Brokaw. You know, guys like that are staying, staying in the hotel with you. Exactly. It's crazy. You know, I walked out of my room to go to the Coke machine and there's Ernie Banks, you know, filling up his ice bucket. You know, and I went to get another towel off the maid card, and there's Reggie Jackson doing the same thing. Yeah. It was like I had sneaked into some private club and gotten away with it. Oh, cool. Um, and then to actually make the speech, you know, a double-day field where there are like 10,000 people, and you know there's a national TV audience watching. you just completely nerve-wracking. You know, never, never did anything for which I was as nervous as I was that afternoon. And, you know, I knew several of the players, several of the Hall of Famers who sit behind you while it's going on. Sure. Including my boy, number one boyhood idol, Sandy Koufax, who I had a chance to meet, you know, a number of times, um, but never really got a chance to hang out with very much. And Gaylord Perry, who pitched for the Rangers and who leaned over to me as we were getting set up on stage and said, you better not take too long or we're going to start booing. <laughs> and... You know, to give a speech with those guys standing behind you, um, very, very unsettling. And probably one of the biggest feelings of relief I've ever experienced in my life was when the speech was over and I realized I hadn't completely screwed up anything. What a thrill. I and mean, after what a thrill. After I finished, um, Dennis Eckersley um, came over to me and I knew, I knew Eck from having interviewed him a million times when he was playing for the A's and he said, he said, that was really great, man. Loved your pace, which, which meant I didn't put anybody to sleep. And that yeah. was cool. But I had decided that, you know, since I had learned Spanish um, back in 1990 and 91 and still considered myself a Spanish student and spoke Spanish uh, every day to at least one or two players and had actually broadcast an inning in Spanish in each Ranger Spanish broadcast for a while to give our announcer a break, that I should do a part of the Hall of Fame acceptance speech in Spanish. So it was basically just a paragraph, just acknowledging to those people listening, you know, who were primarily Spanish speakers, you know, that I that I've made an effort to learn your language and I appreciate what you've gone through. Uh, and you know, all the players seem to appreciate that as well. Well, in addition to writing at least three books. It's unbelievable that you would have the ability, because I took Spanish one like six times, and I can go, hola, como estas? And then so many things I know can speak Spanish, and then no habla español. It, the fact that you learned it, use it, and, uh, and use it in, in a game you, you love to, to paint a picture of, how spectacular is that? I think it's really great. And Sandy Koufax, what a, what a great man, oh man. I, you know, I've, I've asked people, if you could go up for an hour or two, and if you've already done this, just imagine you hadn't. If you could go out with somebody that's in the Hall of Fame, living or, or, or no longer with us, who would that be? 
Well, it'd be Babe Ruth, I think, if you had to, if you could include the guys who are no longer with us. Absolutely, yeah. And I think uh, that's spectacular. I mean, the Bambino, what a what a kick that would be. And I know that there's probably you could probably say, Jamie, ask me who I wouldn't want to go out with, and that would be a lot shorter list than the guys you would. I would pick if it wasn't Sandy Koufax, and I would love to spend five minutes with him probably would be Jackie Robinson or Garrick, you know, and, and, and for obvious reasons, you name it. I mean, I've met a few guys. I've hung a little bit with Robin Young. The thing about baseball players and hockey players, the, the, the guys that I've known, great guys, and I'm sure you've come in contact with thousands of guys that you would think are absolute jam-up guys. 99%, I would say, of the players who I've met in baseball. You know, are are guys who I like. There are very few, um, very few who I've had any problems with who I don't think are genuinely nice people. And you know, it's been really gratifying with people like Nolan, you know, who I watched when I was in high school breaking with the Mets, and Sandy, who I watched as a kid growing up in Brooklyn, and then followed when the Dodgers moved to LA. When you finally get to meet these people and realize that they're they're wonderful people, and you know, they live up to the idolatry that you have heaped upon them over the years. And with rare exceptions, that's been the case. How spectacular. So same kind of thought process, same kind of question. Gracie Slick, Stevie Nicks, Jennifer Nettles, um, Carly Simon, Carol King, or uh, 10,000 Maniacs, uh, Natalie uh, Merchant. Who are you gonna go? Who are you gonna hang with? To hang out? Yeah, I think I'd probably go with Carol King. Amen. That's my era, and I want to hear those stories about how they wrote those songs in the Brill Building and and all the stuff, and then what it was like in L.A. during the Laurel Canyon days. You know, she spanned all of that, and she's still going. You know, occasionally playing shows with James Taylor and yeah. um, coming up with a new song every now and then. But I, I think I'd probably go with her. I wouldn't mind a whole bunch of Gracie Slick stories, too. <laughs> I think if I could only pick one of those, I'd, I'd go with Carol King. Yeah, I think, I, you know, I saw her with James Taylor. They were at the, uh, you know, the big Sprint Center in Kansas City. And, um, you know, Carly, Simon, I, in that year, I mean, we grew up in, in probably, in my opinion, the most dramatic eras in the 60s with the Vietnam anti-draft, the uh, women's rights, the, the civil rights stuff that was going on. So without getting into the uh, Motown folks, um, I just love music. I know you not only love music, but you've been able to take that love of music and combine it with your love for charitable giving. And uh, tell me a little bit about some of the things that you really enjoyed putting together with music and charity. And then um, tell me a little bit about, is it, is it Daphne Willis? Yeah, Daphne Willis. Um, you know, I, I, I heard you mention her and then I talked to Doug Fenn about it a little bit about her. And then I started watching some clips and you had sort of touched on the, the next Carol King, but, uh, she, she's pretty cool to watch on, on some of the th clips that I saw. Yeah. You know, she's now doing a, a Facebook live show every Sunday night. Um, that comes on at seven o'clock central time, but she's just an incredible singer songwriter. Um, she writes a lot of songs for movies and, and TV and stuff now too. 
But um, she was actually recommended to me by Clint Hurdle. When Clint was our hitting coach in 2010, wow. he would constantly give me CDs uh, that he would find uh, in hanging out in record stores all around the league. And, and Clint was one of these guys, he, he never had to sleep very much. And he would stay up at night listening to music. And he would uncover these new artists all the time. And, and when he gave me Daphne's CD, you know, I thought it was just something really special. And I went on her website and basically sent her a fanboy letter. And she was just a kid who had gone to DePaul, grew up in Chicago, went to DePaul, dropped out of DePaul because she was offered a recording contract by Vanguard Records. And she was just trying to make her way in the world as a singer-songwriter. And she had just sung the national anthem, as it turned out, at a White Sox game. And I asked her, well, are you ever coming to, to Dallas to play? And she said, well, I hope to be there in the fall. Uh, both of her parents went to University of Texas, uh, and she was actually born in San Antonio. And we went to see her. This was right after the World Series in 2010. And, you know, she played in this tiny little coffee house with, you know, just a handful of people there and, and was totally amazing. And some friends of mine were opening a new music venue at that time in Dallas. It was actually an old movie theater that Gene Autry had owned that they converted into a music venue that would hold 400 people called the Kessler Theater. And I said, you know, you need to be playing at the Kessler Theater. And I went to go talk to those guys and I brought them her CD. And we hatched this plan where I would have my next birthday, which as it turned out was my 60th birthday cool. at the theater. And Daphne would be one of the performers. Now, nobody in Dallas knew who Daphne was, so she wasn't going to be able to sell a bunch of tickets. Um, but we booked Kelly Willis, who's actually not related to Daphne, but a well-known country singer from Austin, and did a, did a concert where Daphne Willis opened for Kelly Willis. And it was really successful. And Daphne came and stayed at our house. And, you know, we all hit my wife and I and Daphne and, and her band, you know, all got along great. And Daphne and I came up with this idea. Daphne's family has a long history of mental illness. And we came up with this idea to next year on my birthday, do a concert at the Kessler, but do it as a benefit concert and raise money for some uh, mental health organizations. And we did that. And we've been doing it ever since. And this year will be the ninth year that we've done it. It now benefits a group called Focus on Teens which is an advocate for uh, homeless kids who attend schools on a regular basis uh, in Dallas and Fort Worth. They have a very high rate of mental illness, as do all the homeless uh, populations, and a high rate of suicide. And this charity gives them what they need in terms of food and supplies and clothes, also gives them a place, a safe place to go before class. And we've had a variety of performers over the years. Daphne usually is one of the two, but, but not every year, depending on what she has going on. And unfortunately, we just had to postpone this year's show. Right. It was supposed to be the Warren Treaty and Nicole Atkins. Um, and now we're trying to reschedule for some time in early December. Probably we'll have to do it with different bands. But I also do a series of, of smaller concerts once a month for a nonprofit called Cafe Momentum, which takes kids as they come out of juvenile detention facilities and trains them in the restaurant business. Uh, in what is a gourmet restaurant in Dallas. And most of them get jobs in other restaurants at the conclusion of their one-year internship. And the, the mastermind of that whole program, a guy named Chad Hauser, who's also the executive chef, is a big Rangers fan, big baseball fan, and a big music fan. And when I was dining there a few years ago, he asked me 
if I would help them put together a once a month concert series. Uh, and so we have this plan. It would basically be like a house concert, but with better food. And one Sunday a month when they're normally closed, they would open up and we would have an acoustic concert after a family style dinner. And the musicians would design the menu for that night. Wow. And we've been doing it now for two and a half years. Tell me again the name of the restaurant. Cafe Momentum. And where is it located? Located in downtown Dallas on uh, Pacific Avenue. And it's only open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, only for dinner. Uh, they do a lot of catering. But during the week, the kids are getting their training in the restaurant business. And uh, it's a nonprofit restaurant. And Chad always jokes that all restaurants are nonprofit, but he's the only one who admits it. But it's been a tremendous success, and it has now spawned similar restaurants uh, in Los Angeles, uh, Nashville, and there's going to be one in Houston within the next year. Oh, that's tremendous. Unfortunately, there too, because of the pandemic, we've had to cancel a, a March show with Iris Dement, and uh, we're on the verge of probably canceling our June show with Carolyn Wonderland. Yeah. We have Mary Gaucher scheduled for June. I have a feeling that one's not going to go either. Um, but, you know, we'll do what we can. And when things open up and it's safe to congregate again, you know, we'll go back to doing that. So it was a lot of fun for me. Imagine one, one Sunday a month, you could have an incredible meal and you pick the musician you'd like to have play that day. No, that's spectacular. That what a great cause. What a great cause. And she's the only one who's played it twice. I mean, I can remember way back in law school, uh, a job I had for the Dallas Bar Association was going down to the uh, Dallas uh, City Jail every Saturday and Sunday and getting, you know, young people out of jail that had been, you know, arrested Texas OU weekend or arrested for DWIs or whatever. And down on their luck and, you know, some kid lawyer would go up to a, not even a lawyer, go uh, get to know the judges. And, and I know that, uh, you know, regardless of your age, if you can get a break and any break that you can get and take advantage of helps those kids, uh, whether they're in juvenile detention or whether they're just uh, over the age to, to adulthood, there's a tremendous need for that. And with the um, pandemic going around, mental health has got to be stressed. And I, I've, I've seen some of uh, the clips that you've done on, on that subject and urging people to speak out if they have a, a problem because, uh, you know, many people do and don't want to talk about it. I know that uh, that's another area of interest and expertise. And you have a lot of them, my friend. You really span the globe, as uh, Jim McKay would say. And, uh, you know, I think it's great. Uh, I could do this forever. Um, I'm going to close by asking you know, back to the uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young, the Eagles, Hall & Oates, those kinds of groups back in our day, who do you love? Well, you know, my number one overall favorite is Springsteen, and my second is Tom Petty, but they're both more, both more current. Yeah. When you go back to the days that you're talking about, if you're talking about who you would want to spend some time with, I'd have to go with Elvis. You know, I, I imagine that would probably be a lot of fun. Uh, that would be that would be great. But you know, I think my of those bands of that era, um, I was a really big fan of Tommy James and the Shondells. 
Oh yeah. Greatly underrated. I think Crystal Blue Persuasion is one of my five favorite songs of all times. Uh, part of it is the mystery of what it's really about. Uh, but I was a big fan of the, I've always been a big fan of the dead. I was a huge fan of the band. And I'm glad to see there's like this whole band revival now and people yeah. on Helm songs all over the place. And Robbie Robertson uh, doing that global version of The Weight. Um, I'm, I'm so happy to see people you know, catching on to what those guys did so many years ago. And yeah. that music just uh, lives on forever. So I'll get to Neil Young in a minute, but, but uh, stats we're talking about, we're just talking about, you know, uh, what are you doing to kill the time? And, and he's an avid reader and he and he and Carla like to go out and look at the sky. And, you know, you, you talked on one podcast. I said, Dwayne, that was a great play by play on a dove that flew by and the clouds over your condominium in, in, uh, in St. Pete Clearwater. But, and then he goes, you'll, you know, and sometimes he slips into his Harry Carey imitation and sometimes he doesn't, but he'll go, you know who I saw on the beach the other day, Gary Puckett. <laughs> I'm going, he's still alive? And he goes, yeah, he lives down the street. We get together on the beach now. Gary Puckett, the Union Gap. And he goes, you know, the lyrics in those songs wouldn't fly right now. And I go, you know, I'm not going to really look at Young Girl and all those other good ones. But, you know, I love music. I just uh, got a bunch of uh, 33 albums. I threw away my 45s, but, uh, you know, between Chicago and Harvest Gold with Neil Young. I think if I could go spend a, a, a lunch with with somebody, it would probably be, um, I don't know, maybe Neil Young. I mean, that'd be kind of a crazy place. i some time with James Taylor. Oh, yeah. My wife has seen so many James Taylor shows. We just, just had one canceled in Dallas. Um, that would have been next week, I believe. Um, but... He's somebody who I saw in college, you know, when he was a no-name. Uh, I saw, actually, I saw James Taylor and Bonnie Raitt play the same show in 1972. And, but I've never had a chance to meet either one of them, and I, I'd love to, to spend some time with them. You know, we were, again, bored in college, and a bunch of guys in my fraternity that uh, we would, we were all from Illinois, and so we were into the Motown was just starting out 68, 69, or at least to me and my awareness, there was a place in Oak Cliff called the Central Forest Club. And we would, you know, we were, you know, there was a lot of uh, diversity to where we were really like the minority at the Central Forest Club, but we were crazy enough to go down there. And I mean, you would hear Smokey Robinson, who I have no idea who Smokey Robinson was. We'd hear all the, all the big groups would come through the Central Forest Club. I don't know if it's there. I'm assuming it's no longer there. Maybe it's there under a different name. Yeah. There's a place there called RJ's Blues Palace, which has been around forever, apparently under a few different names. Maybe that was it. Well, Campisi's Egyptian restaurant's still there, I know. There is. In fact, they have several of them now, but the original hey. Mockingbird is still there. Limerick, Limerick, a great book, a great read. I loved a lot of, I mean... As a baseball fan, it's it's a it's a interesting and different way. But Ron Washington, I loved his quote that's on the back of your book, and I'd like to talk to 
Coach Ron about sonnets sometime in the future. I'm more of a sonnet man myself. That <laughs> oh, you got to love it. Eric, thank you very much for putting up with me for a little over an hour. This has been a big thrill for me to be able to chat with you about uh, the main love of my life besides my wife and my kids is uh, this great game of baseball. You have the privilege of of calling games 162 plus nights and days a year. And uh, to Sam Green with Envy would be a major understatement, but you've been a true gentleman and uh, I look forward to maybe doing this again. Thanks a lot. I'd love to.